to Beyond Finance, LIBF MENA podcast channel produced by the London Institute of Banking and Finance MENA. Beyond Finance is a platform for current news and trends in the world of banking and finance in the Middle East and North Africa region. In this series, we interview industry and business leaders for the latest insights on all facets of banking and finance. I'm Karim Rifai, Managing Director of LIBF in Middle East. In this episode, we will discuss financial inclusion, the current landscape in the UAE and UK, and what more can be done to improve financial literacy for the next generation. Joining me is Catherine Winter, Managing Director of Financial Education and Community Outreach at the London Institute of Banking and Finance, UK. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. It is your visit to the UAE. Thank you, Graham. It's fantastic to be here. Really enjoying the weather and your lovely office and all your amazing staff. So thank you for having me. So Catherine, introduce yourself to the audience and let us know more about not only LIBF background, but your also background within the financial inclusion and outreach space. Okay, thank you, Karim. Um, yeah, so I'm the managing director for uh, financial capability and community and outreach in the UK for the London Institute of Banking and Finance. I've held that particular role since 2019, um, but I have been with the LIBF since 2016. So um, I, I joined the LIBF straight from actually uh, being a senior leader in a school, being an economics teacher. Um, but my career has not been quite as straightforward as that. So although I joined teaching, I think it was around 2010, I actually have a, a commercial background. So um, I worked for well over 20 years in the luxury goods industry. I was the commercial director for Amoeba Watches um, with the Swatch Group uh, for about eight years. So I have a bit of a, a, a mixed background, really. I have the kind of commercial background, which I really enjoy. Um, but something kind of drove me into education. I'm not really quite sure what that was. I suppose it was a desire to make a difference and I really enjoyed teaching and I taught in a very very tough school in, in, in London and I actually taught our qualifications which was kind of how I ended up here so I got slightly headhunted by LOBF at the time and I, I don't regret that decision and in some respects it was quite difficult because I felt was I moving away from a career where I was being really impactful but I think that what we do in the UK allows us to be impactful on a much bigger so we have nearly 50,000 young people on our courses and qualifications in the UK. So it feels as though, um, you know, the work that we do there is really impactful and important. So that's a little bit, I could probably talk to you a bit more, but that's, that's in a nutshell. It's very interesting to talk about moving from a luxury industry yes. to financial inclusion, which yes. is a bit of a... It's a bit of a switch, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a two sides of the coin, we can say. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there were certainly things that I really enjoyed about the, the job that I had. So we were a, we were a Swiss brand, so I used to spend a lot of time in Switzerland, which is a beautiful country. Um, and I'd spend a lot of my time in beautiful stores like Harrods and, and Liberties and Selfridges. So I used to travel quite a lot. But then I think I just did always have this burning desire that I really wanted to do something that made a difference. Um, and that that's really what then gave me the decision that I wanted to go into teaching. But yeah, very, very different, different, different people, different environment. But I'm definitely somebody who 
thrives on change. I like change, I know a lot of people don't, but I do. And I really like the challenge. And it was certainly challenging moving from what was quite a safe, easy environment um, to teaching, which is probably the hardest job I have ever had. <laughs> you know, uh, London Institute of Banking and Finance known as a practitioner-led education. Yeah. So I want your practitioner definition of financial inclusion, what it means, and uh, why it's so important now? You know, that's a, a really good question because for so, you get a lot of buzzwords in education. And for a long time, there was an awful lot of talk about financial capability and financial education. And suddenly now we seem to be talking a lot more about financial inclusion. So I think it's a really good question. Almost what is the difference? And I think what we, what we want is we, we want... A fairer society is where everybody is able and capable to manage their money. Financial inclusion is slightly different, and it, it's about maybe some people who live on the margins of society. It's often about the most vulnerable people. So in the UK, we have a lot of people who don't have access to a bank account. Um, and, you know, it's really difficult to live your life if you don't, because we live in a digital global world. And if you don't have a bank account, how do you get paid your wages if you have a job? So financial inclusion is about fairness at the heart of it, is about everybody having the skills and everybody being able to access that advice or access the basic requirements you need to, to live your life. And unfortunately, and I don't, it's certainly not just the UK, based problem um but in the uk it, it's it is an extreme problem because we do have a lot of people who are not included and if you if you're not if you're not able to access those services then you're not really part of society you are living on the margins and you know that's actually not very good for anybody you know it might be easy for people to think that well, that's okay because I live in my world and I'm safe and I'm happy and I have enough money to get by. But actually, the very basis of society should be some form of, uh, of equality and, and, and everybody having a good standard of living. We, we all gain and live in a, a safer, happier world if, if, if everybody's getting ahead and everybody is, is doing well and everyone is able to access and and be in control of their money. And I think that's the key thing here. You don't need to be, we're not saying you need to be a financial expert. Mm. We're saying you need to be capable. But the question I have in mind, Catherine, is that if we're trying to come out with a universal definition of financial inclusion, it's going to be challenging a little bit because GDP of country level and dynamics in financial classification in each country varies. In some sides of the world, their average income per capita is higher than other countries. And why we always link financial inclusion and financial vulnerability to uh, who are considered lower class income? Do you see any financial inclusion and vulnerability even for higher class incomes and people who are having access to wealth but not access to knowledge? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really, really good point. So you've almost got a theoretical academic question there, which is you asked me about a definition and can there be a definition that covers a global world? Mm -hmm. I think you can have a rough definition of, of what 
what that is. So access to services and, and, a, and a literacy skill. So one of the things I can tell you in the UK is half of the average working population in the UK has a literacy, a financial literacy ability of a primary school child. Now, that's really quite shocking. We have a numeracy problem in the UK. But numeracy and financial literacy are two slightly different things, but, but they do kind of go hand in glove as well. But the point you're making is, you know, we, there's parts of the world where people are living on less than a dollar a day in parts of Africa. And obviously, that you know, you are here, you are in a country that traditionally is has a high GDP, people have a high disposable income. It's a very different society. You have a, it's, it's set up that the economy is different and people, the way in which uh, people's income and taxation is very, very different. But I, yeah, I, do, I do think you actually make a really, really strong point there. But if we talk about quality, then the quality is for everyone, isn't it? It's not just for people who are living on the margins who, who don't have much money. And I think there is definitely something around people having a having a high income or high disposable income not always quite understanding how to because that creates problems as well that creates the same problems in an awful lot of ways because if people are getting into debt yes debt creates problems for society um and so you know what, what you really want is is a world in which ideally people are less dependent on the state other than if they need to be and they're contributing to society and I think that that's irrelevant whether you are a lower income or a higher income person so yeah I take on board your point I I think it's actually a really good point that we should also be making sure that people who who have a higher income are also financially capable but based on the uh, I think uh Let's talk about the UK and Europe for like some time. Then we try to drive this to our audience in yeah. the and, and North Africa. There have been a kind of uh, different uh, tries and moves happening about financial inclusion in Europe. And uh, I think it started maybe earlier and the agenda was very important in Europe and the UK. Maybe before we start focusing on this a lot here in the Middle East and financial inclusion became a bit a very common word that uh, based on the journey you've been through in the UK, what is the consequences of not driving financial inclusion in in your country, in your community? Give us a couple of, of, of uh, examples or let us know what is really the social and the consequence. It's almost the root, yeah, the, the root of the problem. Um, I suppose there's two key problems or consequences of, of, of not dealing with financial inclusion. One is financial, and one is a broader and slightly harder to define, and it's about the society and the world in which we live in. And actually, what makes us happy are mental health. There's definitely two points. I'll, I'll cover the first point first. You know, a society in which you don't have financial inclusion is going to be a society that holds very high levels of debt. Um, and on a, <laughs> the, the economist in me is going to come out now, but on a very basic level, that's not sustainable, having high levels of debt, um, because eventually that has to go somewhere and, and you start to have, it can on broader terms have huge knock-on effects for things like inflation and, and countries' debt and banks writing off bad debt and unemployment. So you can you can start to spiral. Things can become 
there's a very negative multiplier effect of an economy where you have high levels of debt of people because they're not financially included. And those people are often, if they live on the margins, if they're not working and contributing, then the, the very way in which the circular flow of money works, i.e. people paying taxes or paying money in to then provide services like infrastructure, like roads, hospitals, schools, it doesn't work. It starts to break down and it doesn't work. And over a period of time, that becomes... And what you're seeing now in, in the Western world, in, in places like America, France, Germany, you see all strike chest day in France about pension aid. It, it, it's, it's just a very negative effect of people not playing their role in society, people not working, not contributing, because they're not financially included and they don't they don't understand. And again, it's it's the point you made earlier. That's not just people who are not working or, or, or people who are you know, don't have a bank account. This is people who are often working and have a bank account and have mortgages, but they just don't, you know, they just don't understand how to handle the money. And then you have the other side of it, which I think is the bit that's really interesting, almost the psychology of not being financially included or financially capable. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a great podcast on the BBC about the relationship between money and happiness, which I think is really interesting. And you and I were talking about this separately the other evening and to do with the fact that, you know, you could give people more money, it doesn't necessarily mean they're actually going to be ha guarantee happiness. I mean, there's a basic thing that, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs around what we need, which is security, a home, a family, other things that make us happy, but we need money to live and do the things we want to do. But the bigger issue, and I think this is, you know, certainly in, in most countries now, there's much more awareness around mental health. There is an incredibly strong link with money and mental health. If you ask most people what they actually worry about, it might be their family, it might be, you know, relationships, but actually a lot of the time it comes down to money. They can't pay their rent, they can't buy a house, they don't have enough money to do things they want to do, they've got to put their kids through college, they're worried about that. It's about money. And I think the very basis of a life still is a that you are financially inclusive and you're able to understand it and the happiness seems to appears to come from from the research that they did was around people wanting to feel in control and to feel in control you need to understand something because you're going to have to make decisions on a daily basis and some of them are minor decisions about the things that you buy and is it good value for money and other things are much bigger decisions about buying a house or buying a car or, you know, making investments for pensions. Um, and, I mean, that's a subject we haven't really scratched on, you know. Yeah, pensions, but, I mean, financial inclusion are really interesting. Uh, if I may add... I don't know if I have to uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> if, if I may add this, because, you know, we both uh, shared our aspiration towards financial inclusion and financial literacy. Also, I sometimes see a bit uh, relevant to the... Uh, there is a direct correlation between financial inclusion and social uh, outlook of or social diseases, we call, in certain societies. For example, the implication of financial literacy in divorce rates, in uh, addiction rates. There are certain things that you can really, if you trace the root cause of such social challenges where governments spend a lot of money to solve, they might have saved generations if they have spent more time focusing on financial inclusion and literacy because a lot of money 
or not a lot of money without a knowledge, the application of that money in hand towards finding the happiness could vary from different people and then it could rise into more social challenges mm-hmm. or less social challenges depending on their competency. We can talk about this for whatever, but like, can you tell me more about LIBF in the UK? Mm-hmm. What is the different activities LIBF is doing in the UK to support financial inclusion at which stages, what we're trying to achieve over there, and what's the impact? Yeah, I can. So within the UK, obviously, we are an educational charity. And so, you know, we have very clear objectives around lifelong learning around financial education is is what we do as an organisation. So everything from starting in schools through to our university to professional education and obviously the work that, that you do here as well. So you almost do that in a microcosm of there are a mini version of all of those things over here that we, that we do in London. Specifically in schools, we are a little bit different to a lot of the other charities. So we were the founding member of something called the Youth Financial Capability Group, the YFCG. Um, and there are three other big charities that sit on that with us. And, and they all go in to schools and colleges and they do kind of one-off sessions with young people about being financially included and being financially capable. We're slightly different because we do that as well, um, but we also provide uh, qualifications in financial education and in finance as well. So we're kind of covering both things there. And we do everything from a level one, which is starter in the UK, up to a level two, which is the equivalent of GCSE or for anyone slightly older, O levels, <laughs> and then level three, A levels. So we cover all of that. And we have, as I said earlier, maybe 50,000 people on that. Very, very popular. Financial education is not compulsory on our national curriculum in the UK. So there is something called PHSE, which is compulsory in schools, which is kind of social relationship, education, uh, education around groups and relationships. And the E is economic, but it is not specifically financial education. And that is the only bit that's not compulsory in our system. So the one thing we... We, we lobby for a lot is that we would like it to, to become compulsory. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we have these programs that we run, and then I also manage the community and outreach work, and this is where we do some of our really impactful work. So this is where we have a system in the UK of um, young people who are out of main school education for behavioural issues sometimes or issues at home are in what they call pupil referral units. We do lots of work with them. We also work with lots of charities. So we have in the past worked with um, a woman's refuge. We've worked with homeless charities. Um, We do work with uh, children who are long-term in hospital because they still have a requirement for education. So we have lots of projects that that we are working on. You know, I I can't help it, but I have to ask this question, which is really important maybe for our audience who are getting themselves acquainted with the financial mm-hmm. inclusion and maybe be working for corporates who are trying to find now their ways of how to impact within their society. Tell us a story about when you saw the impact of your work in the UK, making a difference in someone's life that I would love you to share it with our audience to, to make them connect even with the impact of 
of financial education. Do you remember something? Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably sit here for hours and, and uh, I mean, I, I have times myself, even when, when I was teaching myself and I was first teaching our qualifications and I remember a particular student who had a really challenging family background. In fact, he was he was in the car system, so he wasn't living with his, with his parents. And he was just really disengaged with education and learning. And one of the things that was really interesting was that he, there was something about him that I, I suspect, I always used to say to him one of these days, he'd be one of these famous entrepreneurs that, that you hear about, that, you know, he just had this really great uh, practical quality to him. And he was failing on all of his subjects. And I remember he came into my classroom at the time. He was in a lot of trouble in school all the time. And the school kind of really wanted to try and push him out of the system. And I ended up kind of, you know, slightly vouching for him and saying, look, I will kind of keep him with me all day in all my classes and try and, you know, keep him on the straight and narrow. But I mean, he ended up taking our qualifications and he ended up getting the job in one of the biggest um, kind of corporate estate agents in the centre of London and has gone on to be hugely successful and often uh, phones me or sends me cards just to kind of let me know what he's doing and he's now settled, he's married, he has children. There are so many things that when you give someone a little bit of hope and you give someone a bit of belief in themselves and a bit of confidence in themselves to achieve. And he always said that, you know, doing the fact, doing our qualifications gave him that because he realised this was something he was quite good at. You know, he's, he's good at them. I mean, that's an example of my own personal experience, but we have worked with charities and we do have a system where the corporate social responsibility, so in the City of London, is a big thing, obviously, the, the, the biggest export the UK has is financial services and export of one of three financial centres in the world. And we do work with a lot of banks that will give us often pots of money to do this kind of um, project. So we had a project um, there is an area of London, it's where Tottenham Hotspur's football club is yeah. <laughs> um, in Tottenham. And it's a hugely deprived area, really challenging area. And there is a college that is set up there called the Local Academy of Excellence. And this is, um, it's a kind of social mobility programme. So it takes, it takes young people from really challenging backgrounds, but who are really capable. And it puts them through a really rigorous A-level programme. And they are hugely successful in getting young people into Oxford and Cambridge, which, you know, if you live in the UK, that's the place most students want to go to. And actually, we had a sponsorship via some banks that, to put young people through this programme. And, you know, it's great. It's great corporate social responsibility for the banks, and it's great for the It's very interesting how uh, the direct and indirect impact of yeah. financial inclusion education that LIBF is doing in the UK, that we're not, it's not only helping uh, uh, people find their competency towards managing their own finances, but also helping young uh, generation finding their aspiration and careers mm -hmm. around money and finance. Uh, so it's like uh, a pipeline for uh, higher education and future education yeah. and uh, even area of uh, of career for, 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 the, for different students. I, I yeah, just one point, sorry, that I, I just wanted to come back to what you said earlier, which I thought was really important. It is about breaking the cycle because you were saying about almost this, this 
society sees or the way people are, the way people, you know, one of the things, so we do a piece of academic research every year in the UK, it's called the Young Persons Money Index, and we go out to 2,000 young people, and we have some lots of questions about their relationship with money. And we know every year, and it's getting worse each year, young people more and more worried about money, which is the cost of living, it's everywhere they can hear it. But the thing that comes out from that every year, and it would be interesting, you know, if you were to do something similar here, what people, young people would say, at the moment they're getting their financial education, often from their parents or from aunts, uncles, grandparents or the carers, whoever looks after them. And the downside of that is you can pass on bad habits and bad information. And that's why we want it to be a compulsory subject, because we want it to be taught without the emotion that sometimes exists within a family or the bad habits that become normal or can become normal within within, um, generations within a family. It becomes the norm, maybe being in debt, and that's okay. And we want to break that cycle of saying, "Well, you're the you're the next generation," and actually, we don't that we can break that cycle. So I think that you made that point. And I thought actually, that's a really good point. How do we break that and and get young people realizing that they can be more in control and manage their money, and they don't have to make the same mistakes that that maybe and sometimes within certain cultures it can be really um, difficult and uncomfortable certain cultures don't like talking about money with, with their parents or with their children but we kind of need to also try to break that cycle a little bit as well yeah and I uh, I want to share with you a statistic and as a financial inclusion expert a, I won't see uh, what your views on that uh, in recent uh, uh, publication of the World Bank they said a very interesting uh, number that between the year of 2017 to 2021, there is 1.2 billion bank accounts open for the first time for people around the world. That's a great news. But the years of 2019 to 2021 was only 400 million out of the 1.2. Then What's really, uh, and we're recording today in the International Women Day, mm-hmm. the percentage of women having bank accounts mm-hmm. to the overall 1.2 was only 36%. Mm-hmm. Are we slowing down in financial inclusion or actually are we including more? <clears throat> are we looking into women in the same lens to the financial inclusion? As an expert in general, with all what you're doing, how do you see such services? I think it, it, it's quite interesting around when you talk about uh, vulnerable groups. Um, it's very it's very easy to think about um, you know very specific groups of, or extreme ideas of you know of, of people who are as I said living on the margin of society and maybe been unemployed or been involved in crime or don't bank up. And of course, we do know that huge amounts of women don't have control over uh, their finances, don't have bank accounts. And, you know, traditionally, historically, certainly within marriage, it would have often been that couples would have a joint bank account and, you know, very much normally would be the husband. But it was quite, I think there's something quite interesting about this. The, the husband possibly would have had the control, but actually it's often the women that run the house and are actually very good at managing the budget. I mean, I think I learned... the ministers of finance. 
I let my I let my fidgeting skills growing up as a young child. I used to go to to my grandparents every week, and I've let my fidgeting skills from my grandmother, who was amazing at managing money because she didn't have a they didn't have a particularly big income, but they did very well on it because she was so good at managing. This is a, this is a very interesting point. <laughs> yeah, because always people who are in financial struggle, they think about how to increase my income only as the way out of financial difficulties. Yes. Is it the only solution that to increase your income to get out of financial difficulties? Well, no. I mean, if you learn the very basics of budgeting, it's, it's two sides of, of an equation, isn't it? It's You have to either raise that money because they kind of, they have to be. So I think, going back to your point about, about women, I mean, I think we need to, we need to have a clear focus and, be, and, and understand that, you know, women, it's important that they can manage their own money. And, and actually, I went to a lecture about two years ago. We have a, a government organisation called Money and Pension Service, and they do a lot of research in the UK. And it was to do with money and that women and their relationship with money. And I thought it was really interesting. And one of the stats was that young women nowadays who are anything between 20 and 35 are much more likely to to be in control of their money and understand it. However, and I thought this is the really interesting bit, when they then get in a, a, a relationship and a steady relationship, they tend to hand over that, that control or power or whatever word you want to use to their partner, which I thought was really interesting. That So they start off being more financially inclusive and understanding, but there's something very natural within... Well, not only that, Catherine, because actually the more we include women in financials, the more we're getting better chances even to have a future generations who are better boys and girls. Because the impact of mothers in in, in the house Mm. to the family is beyond the gender. It's about the kids and how we grow up. You learn the budgeting uh, qualities from your grandmother, and equally, brothers, sisters can learn as well from those qualities given by our uh, women in the community. And this is something in the Middle East, we always talk about that the mother is the life school. Absolutely. And that will generate variety. That's no different the world over for you mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, I, I hear what you're saying, particularly in the Middle East, but women are very much often the core of the home. And there's a great saying about if you want to educate 100 people, educate a woman first, simply because she will then educate her children. So if you want to make those breaks in society, and you want to have, you know, a, a, a more inclusive society and, you know, a better, fairer and, and, and a more educated, financially capable uh, society, then in reality, the first place to start is with women. <laughs> because actually they are going to be more impactful on a larger scale than anyone else so it's definitely a place to start looking uh let's let's ask ourselves like to conclude as a final question there's a lot of uh, initiatives around the world related to financial inclusion and the recent research say that financial inclusion would help the world achieve eight out of the 17 Sustainable develop UN Sustainable Development Goals. So we know the importance of the top. And there are certain education factors. What's next? Give an action plan to our audience. What's next? What's next? Um, what do we need to do more? 
I've, I've always been able to see the value in, in research-led policy. There is definitely a place for it. You know, let, let's make sure we want to be impactful, but we know first what is the problem before we start to look for a solution. But I think we kind of know what the problem is. I know it varies and it's different. Maybe it's a different problem here slightly to maybe a different problem in the UK. First, you know what the problem is, then you come up with the solutions. And then I am a massive, anyone who knows me, I'm a big advocate for just get on with it and do it. (laughs) You know, it's like, it, it does frustrate me and I have been, I was at the Houses of Parliament about a year ago in London and I had given some evidence to an all-party parliamentary group around financial inclusion and I was there with the chief exec of one of the biggest banks in the world. I'm not going to know the person. Um, And and he and I were talking about, um, you know, what we could be doing more. And and I ended up kind of being quite straight toward talking and saying you have to put more money into it like you know if we're going to run programs which are hugely impactful there is a cost attached to that so for me what's next is let's stop talking about what the problem is we know what the problem is let's stop talking about doing more research on what the problem is we kind of know what the solutions are okay they evolve and change over time and they're a different solution for for different groups of people and different problems but let's just actually do something. Do something. Let's, let's just actually make it happen because what, what are we waiting for? Yes, it's true. And uh, in a recent world of uh, of uh, out of pandemic and COVID nineteen recession, uh, economic challenges, I think uh, if we've done a lot of good steps before, it, we might be a little bit have got two steps back. So actually the effort required in the coming years need to be doubled. Yes. And there's a lot of work need to be done. And it's uh, it's important to find those quick wins mm-hmm. for financial inclusion in every society, in every community. So my advice to our audience as well is that within your own country, within your own community, because most of our audiences are banking on finance professionals and people who are around the industry in a way or another. So start with yourself. Do the impact yourself. Mm-hmm. Do some community work. Engage with the corporation. Try to find ways to support this. That would be also an advice I give to you. Uh, Catherine, I don't really know what to thank you for, for this interesting podcast for our audience or for visiting our Middle East office. But I really appreciate the time you've given to us in the Middle East and to the audience. And uh, this is the first time, but not the last, you're coming back again. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This has been another enlightening episode of Beyond Finance podcast of the London Institute of Banking and Finance, Nina. Catherine Wonder, thank you so much for your time. Thanks to all our listeners worldwide, especially in the Nina region. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about our, uh, us or contact us, visit our website www.nina.libf.ac.uk, follow our social media channels at LIBFNina on Twitter and Instagram and look us up on the LinkedIn, the London Institute of Banking and Finance, Nina. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. See you next episode.